My name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're finally doing it. We're talking about Wes Anderson. In a different timeline, we'd probably be sitting in a theater right now watching his latest film, The French Dispatch. Fortunately, there is no topical reason to do this episode. We're instead doing it because he's one of those guys, you know? He's one of those uh, dorm room poster perennials. We're doing it because we want those clicks, Will. We know people recognize the name Wes Anderson and go, hey, I would like to hear two white bespectacled uh, straight guys talk about his filmography. Two guys who perhaps could be characters in a Wes Anderson movie. For young cinephiles, really for any cinephiles, uh, he's another one of those directors who makes you understand what a director does. He's a man with, you know, a heavy stamp, Heavy amount of style, uh, recurring visual and and thematic motifs that occur from film to film. Look at me! I'm a filmmaker! Ooh, that shows that somebody's actually putting a lot of effort in making everything like a proscenium or making it all symmetrical in frame. But you know, we are going to be talking about Wes Anderson in hopefully a slightly imaginative way. We are going to be looking at Wes Anderson exploitation. Imaginative, you say? Let me play some of that music. Dun, dun. Just imagine Justin and me uh, sitting in a, a symmetrical frame, surrounded by pastel colors. All these movie posters for fake movies, but all very artfully put. Uh, what is Wes Anderson's exploitation? Uh, as the Supreme Court said about pornography, I know it when I see it. Uh, but what do you think it is? Like we already said, it's like symmetrical. It's often a, a flat visual style that captures things in a way that you'd never really see in life. And it's something that is so recognizable when you see it colors, uh, old pop tunes, sometimes covers of them, that is all comes together to be the surface level Wes Anderson. Yeah, and there's often a vaguely old timey aesthetic. Um, I mean, in Wes Anderson's case, it's old timey in a very particular way. It's a place that doesn't exist except in, you know, Wes Anderson's and his imitator's imagination. And it's something that seems easy to replicate. You'll see all of those. What if Wes Anderson made a horror movie Saturday Night Live shtick? But it's much more difficult to actually get to the heart of why his best movies work like they do. And I think I figured it out this week because we watched two Wes Anderson exploitation films and we watched one by the man himself. Uh, we watched Nacho Libre by Jared Hess. We watched A Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III by Roman Coppola. And we watched The Royal Tenenbaum. So why don't we start with Nacho Libre? Because it's the most lightweight version of this kind of style. And the one that when you watch the trailer, you're like, wait, did Wes Anderson direct that? Or did somebody just rip him off? Yeah, did, had you ever seen this one before? Oh, I saw it in theaters. I was full of Jack Black fever when it came out. I was excited to check it out. And I remember sitting there, not even laughing once and leaving going, man, that was bad. Yeah, I never thought I would see this movie again, but um, here we are. This is the movie, of course, where Jack Black plays a luchador, a Mexican wrestler in the tradition of El Santo. Uh, the plot, roughly speaking, is he stars as a Mexican Scandinavian orphan who is raised at a Mexican monastery. At the monastery, they preach a gospel of nonviolence, but he always wanted to be a luchador. And beyond his duties of, you know, um, um, tending to the children and, uh, you know, other, other monastic duties, he has a secret life 
as the titular wrestler Nacho Libre. So Jared Hess, as a director, people may remember he had made Napoleon Dynamite, his bottle rocket, if you will, before this film, which was a massive hit that everybody had Napoleon Dynamite fever. Did you have a vote for Pedro t-shirt? I did not have a vote for Pedro. I remember seeing the movie and going, eh, that's fine. I don't see what everybody's uh, losing their minds about. And I remember when Nacho Libre came out, it was such a like giant leap into big budget filmmaking and that his style, which was, you know, a little bit more naturalistic on Napoleon was so artificial that that actually really excited me. And then when the movie finally played out in front of me, the first and the second time, which was a few days ago, I'm like, this guy cannot tell a story. There's no flow. There's no jokes. There's nothing. And this Wes Anderson style that he's using he is so incapable of kind of exploiting it in the right way. There's no emotional hook. And the minimalism of it, he you can feel him panicking. So he adds like fart sounds and tons of like sound effects in the editing. This movie really moves like molasses, doesn't it? It's just, it's just one scene after another where you have these shot reverse shot conversations between two characters where, again, the character is like right in the middle of the frame, close up of their face. And they talk very slowly in a deadpan Mexican accent. And then it cuts to the other person and they talk slowly in a Mexican accent. And then it cuts back like you better find Mexican accents funny if you're going to enjoy this. And specifically Jack Black doing a really bad Mexican accent, which throughout I was like, Ugh, this does not make me feel good. I spoke to a few people throughout the week who were like, I love Nacho Libre. And I was like, what do you like about it? And all they liked about it was the fact that he talks funny and says funny things, which, you know, uh, rubs me a little bit the wrong way. Well, this was always one of Wes Anderson's less appealing qualities, the way that he uses different ethnicities as ornamentation. The early movies often have like foreign servant characters or just like supporting characters who are like black or hispanic or or something and they often speak in like short clipped monotone sentences and you know even the later wes anderson movies like isle of dogs you know that's a movie that uses i guess japan and its culture sort of the way you might like decorate your house it's the stereotype of what north americans imagine japan to be so it's like sumo wrestlers sushi and by making a whole movie about that and in that film, too, it's all like um, white people who voices all the main characters. Greta Gerwig is a white character who saved the day at the end of the film. That's when you get problematic. I mean, the Darjeeling Limited, which at the time of its release was the least like Wes Anderson film, uses all of India and its people and its culture just to prop up the story of three white guys who are having difficulty getting over their father passing away. Well, the defense that people sometimes give of Wes Anderson regarding his use of like other cultures is the sort of sort of the same defense they give the coen brothers where it's like oh they do it for everybody everybody becomes a stereotype white and black and you know um etc oh man do we have to open this box again it's like yeah you can't be racist against everybody equally like obviously the white people have more power than the uh, minorities that you're portraying on screen because the white is the dominant so you can't make fun of everybody equally in that way yeah so i mean i don't know the 
racial background of everybody who made Nacho Libre. Uh, so I checked. There's a lot of uh, Mexican craftspeople on the film. There's like a Mexican cinematographer. There was a Mexican producer. But it's like white guys who wrote it. It's a white guy who directed it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to cancel this movie or anything. <laughs> Digging up Nacho Libre just to bury it again. What I do think is it's like it's a movie where like the central and perhaps only joke is what if Jack Black spoke in a Mexican accent? Like that seems like we're being sarcastic, but that's the only joke in the movie and it prevents you from or at least it prevents me from like getting involved in the movie because like i'm always just constantly aware oh yeah that's jack black doing a mexican accent like i don't think he believes in the character i don't think he believes in the material and even from a storytelling perspective like the idea of jack black being a wrestler that's fun a wrestler that loses all the time i guess that's fun too but because it piles on the misery throughout you're by the end, you're like, I just don't even care. But when we're talking about what separates Wes Anderson from his imitators, and by the way, after I watched Nacho Libre this week, there was part of me that was like, holy fuck, like, like Wes Anderson has a lot to answer for. <laughs> like, what was he... Was he ever good? I imagine you watching like the Batman serial and you're like, man, was Batman ever good? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but you're right. Like Wes Anderson is so easy to imitate and parody that it makes you wonder, was there ever something there? Like, did he just kind of land on this style that had existed before in like Hollywood cinema or more specifically in the French New Wave with people like uh, Francois Truffaut with like Jules and Jim, uh, Shoot the Piano Player, or even Jean-Luc Godard, Tout va bien, where you can see that like Wes Anderson definitely saw that movie and went, ooh, how could I steal that? One of the things that Anderson does that his imitators don't do is he creates these worlds that are modeled off of memories of the past and aesthetics from the past Uh, but he also makes those worlds sad because he knows and we know that they're imaginary and they also represent something that never really even existed in the first place so like in addition to being sort of kooky and lovely and charming all of his movies are filled with that sense of melancholy that sense of defeat like not only is this not here anymore but maybe it never was there i think that the best Wes Anderson movies, what they have going for them is this completely artificial aesthetic that is visually appealing with elements that go completely against that. You know, with that visually appealing element and his aesthetics, you also have the deadpan performances that are centered in them. And that's what you would expect when you see this kind of very well-manicured world. But when you have people like Gene Hackman in the Royal Tenenbaums, who are such a sore thumb within this that are basically the film's emotional centers, that's when true meaning can come out of it. So we revisited the Royal Tenenbaums this week, uh, and I was ha- I'm was i happy to say that I think it holds up. I think it's very good. I would say that it's good uh, for a lot of reasons that Wes Anderson, if you heard it, was like, oh, well, that doesn't make me feel good. Like the fact that It feels raw in his style. Like after this, he would get more money and he could do the movies exactly the way that he wanted to. And here you have camera moves where like the camera's shaking a little bit. New York feels like a city that isn't 100% controlled by him, which you don't get in the future movies. You're right. He has complete control over the costumes and over like what filters he puts on the camera lens, but he doesn't have complete control over the fact that he's actually shooting on New York streets. And it adds to that melancholy quality. It adds to that feeling of like, 
here's a family that look like they are trapped in time from whenever J.D. Salinger's heyday was, uh, but they're surrounded by an actual city that has moved on. I mean, ever since then, Anderson has become a little bit more like Stanley Kubrick in the way that he's gone further and further and further into his own style. And by the way, I think like it's led to a lot of great places. I don't think it's necessarily led to artistic stasis, but it's different. And I, I do I do mourn a little bit this era of his career. Yeah, you miss that kind of raw feeling. And again, it goes back to performance like Gene Hackman, who famously did not want to make this movie and did not get along with Wes Anderson. And out of everybody in this picture, he's the one who sticks out the most. Like, he is not going to deadpan these lines. He's going to act like Gene Hackman always did. And because his character is a boisterous kind of asshole, that makes it, you know work around him he is so funny in this film because everybody is doing the wes anderson thing and then they're bouncing off of gene hackman in these very symmetrical frames yeah and it's funny because he does stick out like a sore thumb and yet uh paradoxically or contradictorily he does feel like he's he's part of it like he feels like you know uh he feels like the patriarch of this family he feels like faded glamour faded prestige but you get the idea of why they would have kicked him out of this group just by the way he acts like you know he can lead this family but to stay there for that long like it feels weird he's gonna push things too far than they like i mean uh angelica houston and ben stiller also give non-deadpan performances but they're still closer to the style of wes anderson than someone like gene hackman in this picture i think the tone that wes anderson is going for or thinks he's going for is best embodied in bill murray who you know is the quintessential wes anderson actor because bill murray carries with him a lot of baggage of having been a beloved comedian for decades Um, but in the anderson movies he strips himself of all of that and you know he looks like shit (laughs) so he carries he carries with him that sense of somebody who like was once great who you want to love but there's something sad and tragic about him and there's something there's something beneath him that he's suppressing I vividly remember going to see this movie in cinemas, which when this memory struck me, I actually had to think and like, who took me to this movie? Like, I think it was my dad and I was 14 years old at the time. And I was like, why would he take me to this motion picture? Was it just because it was on? Was it like a big thing? Or did he just like Gene Hackman and want to see him in a movie again? Or maybe he liked Bill Murray because that's how I ended up seeing coffee and cigarettes with my uncle. (laughs) Who, let me tell you, my uncle did not enjoy it and I'm sure has never seen another Jim Jarmusch film. (laughs) I remember even at the age of 14, I liked it a lot, but I don't think I quite got it. And my dad, his favorite thing was the tombstone at the end that Gene Hackman has because it's such like an on-the-nose and hilarious joke that it's very easy to understand as opposed to the kind of mood throughout where you're like, is this supposed to be funny or is it not if you're not used to that kind of style? Why don't we talk about a failed Wes Anderson exploitation movie that uh, I think would be useful to compare with the Royal Tenenbaums. That is, of course, A Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III, starring in a very Gene Hackman-esque performance, uh, Charlie Sheen. Oh my god. So this is a movie that nobody likes. You know, after I said it a few days later, 
the real Wes Anderson exploitation movie we should have watched was Garden State. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because that one was really popular, and it basically boils down his style to, like, there's no frills. There's not even that much visual invention to it, but it somehow popped for the general audiences. Inside the Mind of Charles III was a movie for no one. Well, that's a lie. It was a movie for Roman Coppola. That was it. It was also a movie for Charlie Sheen, who stars as the title character, the title character is, I believe he's a graphic designer, uh, some sort of an artist, but also a Lothario. When we're introduced to him, um, in one of the many Fellini-esque touches in this film, like, like you know, it's full of dream sequences, and in one of them, like, they open up his head, and it's full of, like, naked women. You know, like a Terry Gilliam cartoon. You, you see all the naked women come out. And it was at that moment, look, I, I'm always trying to enjoy these movies, but it was at that moment, like 30 seconds in, when I thought, this is not going to work. You know, I watched this movie a few days ago and I don't even remember how it ends. I'm like trying to rack my brain because it was just a mush of stuff. And I just hated almost every moment of it, even though that if you had described it on paper, you're like, oh, it's like a fantastical imagination filled journey through Charlie Sheen's, uh, you know, an analog for his career. I'd be like, oh, that's fun. No, but what it ends up being is like a shallow loser man who has a bunch of fantasies where he rescues naked women. That's pretty much all it is. Yeah. So the inciting incident of the plot is early on, uh, Charles Swan Third is dumped by his latest lover and this sends him into a tailspin uh, that's the plot, basically. Most of the movie uh, goes between fantasy and reality. You see a lot of strange dream sequences. Like, there's one where... I, I mean, there's some pretty sexist stuff in here. Like, there's one where, like, he's imagining, like, the women in his life as some, like underground like resistance called the ball busters or something like that. oh yeah or they're dressed as like indigenous people and uh, it's just terrible there are some friends that he has there's his sister played by patricia arquette there's his best friend jason schwartzman and there is his manager played by bill murray in a performance that made me realize i don't think i like bill murray anymore <laughs> why not i mean look we all like bill murray we all like there was a time when I once actively sought out his movies, but man, you know, seeing him in this, it's like... Has Bill Murray tried any less than this movie? It looks like he doesn't even know where he is. I think what I hate about it is he shows up and there's just this kind of like... The movie has this implicit feeling of like, you're going to love this. Here he is, the guy you <laughs> like, the guy you find so funny, the Zen master himself, Bill Murray. And he's here and he doesn't do anything and he looks like he's an alcoholic. Now, we should point out that the director of this, Roman Coppola, has written the stories of some Wes Anderson movies. Yeah, well, co-written. Co-written, yeah. Well, so he's involved in that world. And when you put him on his own with this picture there's just nothing there it is all the negative parts that people don't like about anderson's films taken flesh on screen the central problem i think is that in the royal tenenbaums like gene hackman is lovable but he's an abject figure and like the lovability comes partly from the fact that gene hackman's a great actor and partly because like like this guy is so pathetic that like all you can do is sort of love him 
But in this one, Charlie Sheen never lets himself appear truly foolish or truly unlikable. The film thinks that you like Charlie Sheen by the end of it, which is the thing that makes me the most angry. Like it ends with like all the characters we met throughout the movie walking down the beach and then you see the director and the crew and you're supposed to be like, ah, yes, what a fun adventure we went through. Instead, you're sitting there and you're like, I hate this. The movie thinks you like Charlie Sheen right from the opening shot. Where, like he shows up and, you know, this is one of those movies. It's like JCVD or Max Rose, where, you know, where it's all like, where it's all like, okay, we're taking this, this movie star who has so much baggage and we're doing a 90 minute meditation on this movie star and everything he means. And he's basically playing himself. But Charlie Sheen, I don't find that interesting a screen presence and I don't care about his life. Like you said, JCVD in that movie, you get to see Jean-Claude Van Damme as a loser, as a sad sack, as somebody whose life is not great. And Charlie Sheen never does that. Like he's having problems. Will he be able to finish the cover for Jason Schwartzman's album? Who cares? Yeah, it's like his biggest problem is that he's fucked too much, which like, (laughs) sorry, I don't care. (laughs) Which, you know, I can understand someone like Roman that he, his life experiences have been mostly in the lap of luxury. So, you know, he has difficulty understanding us common people. Well, the other problem compared to the Wes Anderson movies is, and, and this is, uh, more abstract and more difficult to pin down, but the Charles Swan the third film looks good. Like the production design is very good, but I don't sense that Roman Coppola has the same relationship with these aesthetics that Wes Anderson has with his own. They don't feel as specific and lived in as they do in, say, the Royal Tenenbaums, where in the Royal Tenenbaums, all of the weird kooky style comes from a particular love of like the Upper East Side in the 1920s to the 1940s, you know? Well, you get the sense that Roman is a cinephile. He's seen Fellini's Eight and a Half a bunch of times, which is why you're going to love Charlie Sheen tap dancing at his own funeral. But no, you just sit there and you go, okay, what is this emotionally giving me? It's not funny. So it's just like razzle-dazzle for the sake of it. So as we uh, as we close out our discussion, I want to ask, are you a Wes Anderson fan? Would you identify yourself as like, like when, when he has a movie out, do you get excited? I do get excited, but I wouldn't call myself like an obsessive. Like I'm not like, oh man, I can't wait. It's like, I like it. I like his movies. But I remember being so excited for The Life Aquatic and going to see it and being like, oh, that's okay, I guess. Feels a lot of style over substance. You know, it's funny. I think he's a great director. Uh, I think in some ways he's better than ever. I am probably less excited for him than I've ever been. Um, You know, when The French Dispatch comes out, I'll of course go see it and I'll probably enjoy it. Um, And I'm not quite sure what to attribute that lack of excitement to. Like, it it sort of feels like, I mean, I'm not actually saying that I've seen everything that he has to offer, uh, because I don't I don't necessarily think I have. It's because the French Dispatch looks so much like the Grand Budapest Hotel. That's why you're not excited for it. If it was like a radically different thing that looked like nothing he had done before, like even from uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox to Moonrise Kingdom, you're like, oh, this aesthetic is different. Has people like Bruce Willis playing around in it. This looks like fun. But you look at the trailer for The French Dispatch, it looks exactly like Budapest Hotel. You know exactly what you're going to get with it. You're right. You're right. I think that's why I'm not excited anymore. 
Uh, but I hope to be proven wrong. Yeah, maybe we'll see it and it will be radically different than what we expected. He's still experimenting. Like, he did a bunch of stuff in Grand Budapest Hotel he had never done before. So I hope, I don't know, he makes a space movie or something like that. Really wows me. I remember listening to the commentary on uh, The Life Aquatic and he is very critical of his own directing. He's like, oh boy, I can't shoot an action scene to save my life. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Kevin Roy. And he goes, greetings, Important Cinema Club Cinema Boys. As a fellow Canadian with an interest in collecting Blu-rays released by boutique labels, I often find it difficult to find my desired discs at a decent price. Amazon.ca never seems to have what I'm looking for, and if I go through Amazon.com or sources like Diabolic DVD or the Boutique Label's own website, I often end up paying $45 for a single Vinegar Syndrome release. So where do you guys buy your Blu-rays? Is overpaying just my lot in life as a Canadian collector, or are there more affordable avenues I can go down? Thanks for all that you do, Kevin. Well, first off, Kevin... I'm sorry, there's no secret code we can give you of like a magical website where everything is really cheap. I will say, if you live in Canada, Vinegar Syndrome ships from Toronto now. They have a Canadian distributor. So if you spend more than $100 in Canada, it's actually free shipping. Yeah, I mean, it's an expensive pastime, to be sure. Um, I've had a lot of luck over the years going to BMV, our local used bookstore. You know, I've reached the point, though, where I don't think I'm going to go into used stores to uh, pick up new Blu-rays. Now, I've had fines of like DVDs and books that I'm like, I can't believe that I can get this at this price. At the same time, you know, the... Time and time again, I've walked into a used bookstore and gone directly looking for that one specific thing. When if I just saved my money for a little while and ordered it online, I would get it. It's like, why don't I just do that? Because in the process, I buy so much junk that I do not need. But because my mind can register prices, I know, ooh, that's cheap. I'm not going to get this for a better price. And then I buy it knowing that when I watch it, I'm not going to enjoy it that much. Justin, I have nothing to add. I think you've summed it up. (laughs) And I mean, it's best to buy stuff directly from uh, the companies themselves, they make way more of a profit margin on it that way. And shipping sucks, but it's unfortunately the price of shipping everywhere. There's uh, Most companies don't like stiff you on shipping, I don't think. It's just like really expensive to order stuff and to have it ship around the world. Yeah, so just buy less things that you hate. <laughs> buy more things that you really want, aka every gold ninja video release. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, collecting, it's getting to the point where it's Laserdisc prices right now. You know, back when Laserdiscs existed, I was not conscious to be buying them. But they were like $70, $80 for like just the movie in its correct aspect ratio. It's half that price now, but more than it was when it was mass marketed. And I would say it's more to our advantage just because we get very specific things like every Jackie Chan movie ever released in the greatest special edition ever, but you got to pay an extra 10 bucks. <laughs> All right. So again, if you want to send us letters, it's important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing this week on our Patreon? Will? there's been a lot of talk about Spike Lee lately. He has a brand new movie on Netflix and we decided to not talk about that, but instead talk about one of his least popular movies ever. 2013's Old Boy. Yeah, people have been really excited to hear our thoughts on his uh, retake of Park Chan-wook's original, but with Josh Brolin in the main role. Will it be great? Have we rediscovered a film that audiences at the time just tossed away? 
You'll have to listen to find out. $5 a month, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. So speaking of boutique uh, Blu-ray labels, you know, why not just advertise Gold Ninja Video a little bit? It's the boutique label that I run and me and Will do a whole line on it called The Important Cinema Club Bargain Bin Classics. And we've worked on such great films as The Dragon Lives Again, the Bruceploitation film where he goes to hell, or uh, the Three Stooges collection where we did all of his public domain shorts. Oh, well, we just did Strangler of the Swamp, and that's brand new. The Poverty Row horror classic Strangler of the Swamp, which you can get with our uh, immaculately researched audio commentary, plus several bonus movies from the career of German emigre filmmaker Frank Wisbach. Including one that you cannot find anywhere on the internet that's hidden on that disc. And also Devil Bat's Daughter, his infamous sequel to the Poverty Row monster movie classic. And, you know, I've also released stuff that Will hasn't been involved in, like Mango Shake, which is an actual original production that has never been released anywhere before. We just did Holy Virgin vs. the Evil Dead, a Category 3 uh, splatter martial arts film that co-stars Donnie Yen. And, you know, to give a little bit of a tease of what's coming up, you know, it's like when people like Shout Factory and uh, Vinegar Syndrome go and talk about what's on our upcoming slate and they hint at stuff. Um, What's going to be released very soon is going to be a Blu-ray from a filmmaker that it is shocking we have not tackled him yet. Somebody we've (laughs) talked about a lot. (laughs) Yeah, that we a lot. Somebody that I think that the idea of doing this was around one of his films, which has since been released by a very... Um, <laughs> everybody knows who we're talking about if you listen to more than five episodes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we're tackling him and we're doing movies that uh, not that many people talk about. So we'll actually announce that officially. And uh, there's a lot more that's lined up after that, including one of the craziest releases that we have ever done and will probably kill me by the time I'm finished doing it. But I'm really excited to get to it. Again, something that we've talked about before and, you know, no one has treated with this kind of respect because that's what I think is the mantra of Gold Ninja Video is treating stuff with respect nobody ever else has before. Like, even someone like Frank Wisbar, he made a lot of movies. There's no special edition of any of his films. Because I guess distributors consider like, eh, nobody would want to hear about him. So it doesn't really matter. We don't even need to get a commentary track. <laughs> but we know that the Wisbar heads are out there. <laughs> or there's people that are just hungry of being like, you know, I'd watch something like Strangler of the Swamp. But I want to know the context around it. Like, who made it? How did it come about? And that's what, um, you know, the releases at Gold Ninja Video offer. And we do that with every one of them. I, we put everything into them and we appreciate people that pick them up very reasonably priced at ten dollars so you can pick those up at goldninjavideo.com and they are limited editions like at this point dragon lives again is out of print kung fu zombies out of print uh wolf devil director the films of pearl chang are out of print so you got to act now and i should say because i get emails all the time about out of print titles being like please do you just have one hidden somewhere and the thing is like it wouldn't be fair to people that like bought those limited editions for me to go, oh yeah, I found some more. Like I'm not um, Charles Band where I'm like, I found some classic VHS boxes in the warehouse 25 years after they were released. But they may uh, end up reprinted in a different way. Like they will not be like those releases. Like maybe the booklet will be missing or maybe special features will be missing just because it's not fair to 
you know, turn around and go, oh, we're going to reprint more because there's value in something being limited edition. And you can stare at that Three Stooges disc and be like, I'm one of the few people that have one. So what are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we are returning to Hong Kong, but not in a way that you may anticipate. Um, That's such a stupid thing to say. Uh, (laughs) We're we're, going to be talking about Cynthia Rothrock. Justin, who is Cynthia Rothrock? Cynthia Rothrock was a North American martial arts performer who won a lot of competitions and forms. She got spotted by a Hong Kong talent agent and ended up in Hong Kong working on stone cold classics like Yes, Madame with Michelle Yeoh, Shanghai Express, a.k.a. Millionaire's Express, the Sammo Hung directed joint, uh, Magic Crystal, a Wong Jing picture. She did not work for a very long time in Hong Kong, but I think it'll be fun to watch her films and talk about what her presence brings to these very particular Hong Kong productions. And what's fascinating about her career is that it continued after that into the dregs of Hollywood filmmaking. She worked with people like Leo Fong, Godfrey Ho, and our favorite, David Dakota. (laughs) That's right. She's still working now. Yep, she is. So I'm excited. We'll be tackling Cynthia Ross Rock. What movie should we do? Oh, uh, China O'Brien, maybe? Oh, yeah. The Robert Klaus film, the director of Enter the Dragon, Battle Creek Brawl. And I guess we'll watch Yes, Madame. I think that's probably her most famous Hong Kong picture. Yeah, even though she's not in as much of it as you would expect her to be. But uh, it's a good film. She didn't really ever have her own starring role, unless you count like the Blonde Fury or Writing Wrongs. But even then, those are like supporting pictures. So I'm looking forward to it, diving in. We get to watch fun movies next week. <laughs> Not uh, fucking inside the mind of Charles Swan. God. Oh, my God. So until then, my name is Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hello, Justin here, interrupting briefly to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Jack Book, Avery Brooks, Galen Wilson, Eric Gilliland, Alex Lines, Cole Flowers, Elijah Juan Butler, Robbie Cheshire, Clint Isinger, and Alex Wilson. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do it without you. And as per usual, if you could follow us on the social medias, I'm at DeCluj, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, the letter J, and Will is at Will Sloan, E-S-Q. It would be very much appreciated. We also have Twitter pages. If you go on Twitter, just Important Cinema Club, same thing on Facebook. Search Important Cinema Club, will come right up. And if you're a fan of Gold Ninja Video, follow Gold Ninja Video on Twitter. Yep, that's our name. It's real easy to find. And finally, if you haven't rated or reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, please do so. We would appreciate it immensely. And if you want to hear me talk about movies more, you can listen to me every two weeks on the No Such Thing as a Bad Movie podcast, where me, April Atmansky, and Colin Cunningham pick a so-called bad movie and then each select our favorite element of it and go through the entire experience. And I also have another show called the Bay Street Video Podcast, where me and the product manager of Bay Street Video, yes, an actual brick and mortar video store that still exists in Toronto, Ontario, me and the product manager, Mark Hansen, go through every new release every week. It is an exhaustive, funny, and just you know, hanging out with a couple of pals kind of look at all the new movies coming out. Even if you're not a consumer of Blu-rays and DVDs, you'll learn about films from around the world which are finally being released to the public. There's discoveries, classics, 
and just plain terrible sounding movies that we discuss every week on the Bay Street Video Podcast. Give it a listen. I'd really appreciate it. And now we return you back to your regular schedule programming. Speaking of home entertainment and boutique DVD labels, one of the big events of the year has been the release of Severin Films's uh, complete Al Adamson collection. I think they call it Al Adamson the Masterpiece Collection. That's akin to us calling this podcast the Important Cinema Club. <laughs> so I approve. Uh, for those who don't know, Al Adamson was. Uh, I guess you could compare him to Ed Wood, but, you know, much more prolific than Ed Wood. Ed Wood is kind of like a go-to signifier. Al Adamson is more of a guy that Um, disappointed almost everybody that saw his movies because he and his producer, Sam Sherman, knew how to cook up something that was mostly sizzle and very little steak. But what's fascinating about his career is that if you see an individual movie, you will be disappointed. Like, do you remember when you saw uh, Dracula versus Frankenstein? Yes, I do. And in fact, yeah, so so I knew what I was getting into. Like I knew who Al, Al, Al Adamson was, so I knew it was going to be bad. So I had a pretty good time with Dracula versus Frankenstein. Oh, I like Dracula versus Frankenstein a lot. But can you imagine being a kid picking that up? with its amazing cover art at the video store and popping it in and discovering a film that's made up of like three previous shoots, most of them that did not feature Dracula or Frankenstein. And Frankenstein is like this mush-faced monster, while Dracula is like the director's accountant. And also, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. is in it, but he looks, I mean, he looks like he just saw the devil. He looks horrible. And he can't talk? Because he's on the doors of death and he has cancer of the throat. Oh, my God. (laughs) And John Carradine is there as well. And as people pointed out, why didn't you get him to play Dracula? John Carradine, I think, is probably in a few Al Adamson movies. Oh, yeah, he is. And, you know, which begs the question of, like, why did people think that John Carradine was that big of a name that people would be so excited to check him out? John Carradine was kind of the Eric Roberts of his day. Oh, yeah. I would say he was seemingly more prolific than Eric Roberts. But then you have to consider that people like Fred Olin Ray would shoot a scene with John Carradine with plans to insert it into a movie at some point. So it didn't really star in those pictures. But, you know, when you look at that Al Adamson box set, what's fascinating about it is that he has a Jess Franco-like career, that it's not about one movie, it's about all the movies. And that when you hear, like, the past that he took and the things that he did, like, his films, thanks to producer Sam Sherman, are packed with, like, wizened Hollywood stars who had not worked in, like, 15 years. Because he just liked these people, and he wanted to put them in movies. The films are also shot by, like, Vilmo Zygmunt, because he was new to the country, and nobody else would give him a job. So he shoots five bloody graves. The one that I'm really excited to finally watch is Blazing Stewardesses, which, you know, is an R-rated sex comedy that uh, originally was supposed to star the Three Stooges. And by that you mean the one stooge and two other guys. It was going to be Moe, who was the last remaining original member, plus Curly Joe. And in the Larry slot, because Larry had suffered a stroke, they were going to get Emil Sitka, who was like one of the supporting guys in, in a lot of the Stooge movies. But then Moe finally succumbed to cancer. There were a few like publicity shots of the Three Stooges, like you know, signing the contract for this movie. And oh my God, they look, it makes your hair stand on end. But anyway, uh, because they couldn't get the Three Stooges. They replaced them with the next best thing. The remaining Ritz brothers. (laughs) The remaining. 
Everything Ritz Brothers. So just just two of them, but I'm excited to finally watch that. Just flipping through the amazing um, layout that Severn put out for this box set, which I have to say cost like 300 Canadian dollars. I think it was like 170 US if you bought it from their website, but like that's a lot of money. I discovered, and I did not know this, that like Al Adamson and Sam Sherman were straight up Godfrey hoeing most of these movies. They would buy like Uncle Tom's Cabin, a 60 uh, G-rated uh, German film, and then insert like new salacious footage into it. And then the cover could be like a big black guy like whipping a white woman. And it's like Uncle Tom's Cabin. And they did this a lot. And then you get a movie like The Dynamite Brothers, which is like uh, co-starring an actual Hong Kong star, Alan Tang, and is choreographed by Lam Ching Ying and, and Philip Ko and Philip Kwok actual Hong Kong martial artist, you know, Lan Ching Ying is the one eyebrow priest from the Mr. Vampire film. What is he doing in this Al Addison movie? God, it's just so exciting to know that this box set contains so many like strange detours in film history, so many unusual people. And you were showing me that uh, some of the movies have been restored, like, like from the last remaining print. Like there was one like Al Adamson in some cases would just like cut the negative of his old movies and, you know, reassemble them into new movies. So, you know, he was definitely did not have the mind of an archivist. And there was one where the print was so damaged that basically they had to scan it like a couple of feet at a time racing against the clock. I believe that film was technically Al Adamson's first directorial effort, even though it's credited to his father, who was a poverty row filmmaker slash Western star who was like bottom of the barrel, like the worst of the worst. And the film was believed to be lost. But while David Gregory, the guy who runs Severn, was putting this box set together and was um, directing and editing the documentary, they found a copy of it. I'm sure like just terribly destroyed and they were able to remaster it and put it on this uh, set. There's even like a book that goes through all the production history of every movie, like what film it's from, what's like art and like what they had to do to actually get the film in the best way it could ever look on these Blu-rays. Oh, wow. You know, despite everything, I am happy to be alive right now. <laughs> for this kind of stuff i mean you look at al adams's career you're like he did westerns he did uh tons of black exploitation films black exploitation martial arts films that started jim kelly and he also did a uh, musical cinderella 2000 which was supposedly his main passion an erotic musical that was shot in todd a.o widescreen process which is what they use for oklahoma the classic <laughs> musical version <laughs> And now, you know, you probably wouldn't buy those films on their own, but you're going to buy them when they're all collected together. If you can still get a copy, because I believe they're pretty much out everywhere. First of all, I have bought a few of them on their own. So. <laughs>